since it is Palm Sunday, I would like to begin by reading from Matthew 21, where Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is recorded. So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew 21, you may. That's not the text we're going to be in for the majority of our time, but I'm going to read the first five verses of Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. <clears throat> 2000, well, a little bit more than 2,000 years ago, to this day, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Most of you know this. Most of you heard this story uh, growing up in Sunday school and whatnot, right? And, and we know how it goes. The people come out. They throw their cloaks out in front of him. They throw palm tree branches on the, uh, on the ground to, to line his path. And they cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the picture we see here is very similar to that of a victory parade, one that would be thrown for a triumphant king, a king who has vanquished his enemies and is returning home with the spoils. The people of Israel, of Jerusalem, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah who had come to save them. But very soon things would change because they would reject Jesus. Because he was not the kind of king they were wanting. Now we're going to come back to this. But today, as I said, I'm not preaching from Matthew. I'm preaching from the book of Zechariah. But the passage we just read, it, it, it mentions that this event was spoken of by the prophet. You probably guess the prophet it's referring to is Zechariah. So today we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 9. If you want to turn there now, you can do that. The book of Zechariah was written about 20 years after Israel had returned from exile. But even though they had returned from exile, this didn't solve all of their problems. It was still a very difficult time for the people of Israel, and they were greatly discouraged. And so Zechariah writes to the people of Israel to remind them that you are still God's people. God will still defend you and protect you, and God has a plan to restore you to himself, to set all things right. In our passage today, Zechariah prophesies about different aspects of this, this plan of God to restore his people. And as he does this, he prophesies about events that take place at very different times. And it's not always in chronological order either. So, so when we read prophecy, we just need to recognize that. We're going to be jumping around a little bit. And as we go, I'll do my best to make sure you know what time period he's speaking of and what these events are that he's describing. So keep that in mind, and I think we'll be okay as we go. Sound good? All right, let's get started. We're going to read Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind, and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also which borders on it. 
Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall, come, shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. <clears throat> so if you think back to when we were in the book of Isaiah, we went through a section called the Oracles Against the Nations, and they were a series of judgments that God was proclaiming against the wicked nations, the enemies of Israel. And here we're seeing something very similar. This is an oracle of judgment on the enemies of Israel. Now, I tried to find a map so that you guys could kind of see the way that this moves from north to south, but the distance between these cities was so large that if I put a map up here, you wouldn't have been able to see what you're looking at anyways. So I apologize. You'll just have to take my word for it when it comes to the geography. But what we see here is a general north to south movement with the judgment of God. And that's significant because in the Old Testament, judgment and danger and trouble was, was associated with coming from the north. When Israel was judged, it came from the north in the form of the Assyrian Empire. And later it came from the north again in the form of the Babylonian Empire. But now it is not Israel who is falling under judgment, who trouble is coming to. It is their enemies. And God's judgment is now coming from the north to fall on the enemies of Israel. The first city that we see there, Hadrach, this is the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. <clears throat> Every other city that's listed here was at one point considered Israelite territory. But Hadrach is far outside of that territory. And I think that's significant because it's demonstrating that the Lord is not only sovereign over Israel. He's not only sovereign over his chosen people. The Lord is sovereign over all nations. And any nation that opposes the Lord will fall under his judgment. The word of the Lord, it says, makes its resting place in Damascus. And that was the capital of, of Syria. Throughout the history of Israel, Syria consistently harassed and caused problems and came to fight against the people of Israel. But the Lord knows this, right? The eye of the Lord is on mankind and especially on the tribes of Israel. The Lord sees. He knows all that has taken place. He knows what his people have gone through, how they have been treated by the surrounding nations. And now the Lord promises to bring judgment on those enemies. But he doesn't just stop with these two cities. He keeps going, again, from north to south. The judgment of God will also come to Hamath, which is another city in Syria. And this one actually is a little bit further north uh, than Damascus, um, but it's still within that same nation of Syria. And this is probably the furthest tip of Israel's border at any point in their history. So he's, he's reinforcing that judgment on Damascus and, and, and Hamath. And then he comes to the, the cities of, of Tyre and Sidon. And this is where he starts to get a little bit more specific. 
He speaks about the wisdom of Tyre and Sidon. In Scripture, we often see these two cities paired together, uh, but like here, the emphasis usually falls on Tyre. They're frequently described as a very wise city, but the wisdom is not a positive thing. Because as we look through the other prophets, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, we see that the wisdom of Tyre is ultimately what led to her judgment, because she took great pride in her wisdom. Tyre was not wise by God's standards. She did not fear the Lord. She was wise in her own eyes, in the eyes of the surrounding nations. Tyre was considered wise mainly because the location of its city gave it great military and financial strength. It was a port city right on the Mediterranean Sea, so a lot of trade and commerce came through it. They were able to amass a crazy amount of wealth, but it also gave them a pretty secure defensive fortress because the city was actually built on an island off the coast. So it was about a quarter mile from the coast. So that already makes it very difficult for an enemy force to come in and take it. Like if you're an island, they've either got to swim or come by boat, and that's easy pickings for your archers, your people with slings on your wall. So it was very, very difficult to take this because of their location. But on top of that location, they also built this massive wall to keep out invaders. And from what I could tell, the different historical descriptions I found of this, they said that this wall was nine meters thick. If you don't know what meters are, because we're in America, that's okay. I'll, I'll do the math for you. That's about 27 feet. That's a big wall. Seems like overkill, if you ask me, but it got the job done. This place was a literal fortress. When the Assyrian Empire came to take the city, they laid a five-year siege against Tyre, and it failed. When, Babylonian, when the Babylonian Empire tried to come and take the city of Tyre, they laid a 13-year siege, and it failed. For two decades, this city was under siege from the most powerful nations on the planet, and they withstood it because of their own strength. Their prime real estate, as I said, wasn't just for, for military strength, but for commercial success as well. They were incredibly wealthy. Silver and gold were uh, the most valuable metals in that day. But they were commonplace for the people of Tyre. It says that silver was as common as the dust that you would sweep off the ground. That fine gold was, was as common, it was as easy to find as the mud that was on the streets. With such financial and military strength, it's easy to see why the world looked at Tyre and thought they were so wise. But Zechariah says, Behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, strike down her power on the sea, and she will be devoured with fire. The power on the sea, it can refer to a couple of different things, but the most likely is that it's referring to that massive wall they built. And what Zechariah prophesied, that happened about 150 years after he wrote down this prophecy. Tyre fell, fell finally at the hands of Alexander the Great. Alexander built the, these large roadways from the coast all the way out to this island so that they could get their army in and they could take over the city. It was a, a costly project. Alexander lost many men in this endeavor, and that enraged him. So when they finally did take the city, they ransacked it. They destroyed it. They took whatever they felt. They executed its leaders, and the vast majority of the population was sent into slavery. Tyre was wise but could not stand before the judgment of the Lord. 
Alexander did amazing things. He accomplished much in a short time, but ultimately he was a tool in the hand of the Lord. The security that, that Tyre found in financial and military strength was shattered at the word of the Lord. All the wisdom of this world, the military strength, the riches, anything this earth offers, it cannot stay the, the hand of God's judgment. There is nothing that can stand against the Lord's plan. Even the wisdom of the great city Tyre crumbles at his word. Now, if you know your history, you know that Alexander the Great didn't stop there. He continued having more and more military success. And he continued going further south into the land of the Philistines. And those are the cities that we read in verses 5 and 7. There's five major cities. We only see four of them here. Because by the time of Zechariah, one of them had already been taken over by the Israelites. But it says that Ashkelon quivers in fear. They're terrified when they see that, that Alexander has made light work of Tyre. If even the great and wise city of Tyre can, can fall, what hope does Ashkelon have? Because they've been repeatedly conquered over and over by different nations and empires. Gaza, its sister city, joins in this fear. They writhe around in anguish. They are shaking. They are cowering like a little child. And Ekron, too, their hopes have been dashed, have been confounded. Because you know in a time of need who these cities would look to for help? Tyre. They just watched their greatest source of help, their source of security, was just utterly destroyed and devastated. So what hope do they have? And Zechariah continues. He says that the king of Gaza will perish. That happened too. Alexander came in and he said, Surrender and give me your city, and the king refused. So Alexander executed thousands of his people, tied ropes to his legs, and dragged them from the chariot until he was dead. And then Alexander would continue. He would eventually take all of these cities... And then those who inherited, inherited his kingdom, they would fight over them. They, they would deport the people. They would bring in foreigners, just as Zechariah said was going to happen to these cities. The Lord did ex exactly as he said. He cut off the pride of Philistia. But what's interesting is that, that judgment is not the end of God's plan for Philistia. In verse 7, now looking further into the future... He says that God will take away the blood from its mouth, remove the abominations from their teeth. So the Philistines did not follow the same law as the people of Israel. They did not abstain from consuming blood in the way that the people of Israel did. And they also had a whole host of wicked practices and rituals involving eating and sacrificing unclean animals, things that God called an abomination. But God says, I'm going to remove these sinful practices, these abominations from your midst, and I'm going to take a remnant from the Philistines. I will take them for myself. They will be like a clan in Judah. Ekron will live at, at peace with Israel like the Jebusites did. The Jebusites, if you're not familiar with them, they were the original inhabitants in Jerusalem in the book of Judges. The people of Israel were supposed to drive them out, but they didn't. They, they allowed them to coexist and live there. So what God's saying is not only is he going to judge these, these nations for their sin, but he's also going to save the nations as well. And, and I believe that we see a partial fulfillment of this in the book of Acts, because in Acts 10, Philip takes the gospel and preaches to these same Philistine cities. When we get to verse 8, he's looking even further into the future. This, this is after the second coming of Jesus when God establishes his perfect heavenly kingdom. 
And God says, I'm going to encamp at my house as a guard. And the house there represents Jerusalem. So the Lord's saying, I will personally defend my people. There will be no more enemies to come against you, Israel. No oppressors will even encroach onto your land because I will be present. I, will, I, I see with my eyes. I will be there to keep watch over you. So in these first eight verses, Zechariah is telling the people of God that God is going to defeat their enemies. God will judge the enemies of his people. That's, that's number one if you're taking notes. God will judge the enemies of his people. Life in Israel was difficult at that time. I said this earlier, the exile was over, but that did not fix the problems. There were all kinds of heavy taxes and other uh, very strenuous problems that they had to work with. And you can imagine, as an Israelite coming out of exile, it was frustrating to see the wicked nations prospering. They're struggling along, barely making it, and they see the wicked city of Tyre in all of its glory and prosperity. You, you can imagine that they probably felt like God's abandoned us. He sent us into exile. We're not in exile anymore, but, but certainly he wants nothing more to do with us. But Zechariah says, no, 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 don't worry. God has not abandoned you, and God is going to judge your enemies. Church, even when things are bleak, we should not fear, because God will not abandon his people. It, it can be disheartening when we see the church being persecuted around the world, or when we are mistreated for our faith, when we see the wicked continue to get away with their wickedness and they're never held accountable, that can be so frustrating. But don't lose heart. Because the Lord has a plan for his people. And that, that plan includes judging the wicked. They will be held accountable. Let's keep reading. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth." Verse 9 is the one we all know, right? Well, we read that at the beginning. And Zechariah, what he's doing here is he's giving a command. He is commanding God's people to rejoice and celebrate because their long-awaited Messiah is coming. You see, the Lord made a covenant way back with King David, and he promised David that it would be his descendant that would reign forever in God's kingdom. And this promise was, was the hope of the Jewish people. This is what they were longing for, looking forward to. They wanted God to send this Davidic king. And that is the king that Zechariah is speaking of in verse 9. This is the king, the Messiah that the Lord has promised us. He's going to come and save his people and establish a new kingdom. So Zechariah is saying to the people of Israel, Rejoice! The king, he's coming. He's going to be here soon. This king who is righteous. He is always characterized by righteousness in the Old Testament. Righteousness is the meeting of God's perfect standard. All through the prophets, we see this Davidic king. He is described as having a belt of righteousness. He is described as the righteous branch. This king will be perfect in righteousness. He will not be like the wicked kings that they have known. Their own kings who consistently led them astray to disregard God's law. 
He won't be like the wicked kings of the nations who, who were brutal to those under them, who mocked the Lord and oppressed his people. This king will be righteous, and he comes with salvation in hand. And that's the second part of Zechariah's message here. The Davidic king is coming to save his people. The Davidic king is coming to save his people. Zechariah wrote down these words 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And this, this verse prophesies about the coming Messiah, the Davidic king who, who will arrive to save his people. And when we fast forward to Matthew, Jesus fulfills this prophecy. He arrives in Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he gets the reception of a king. But within a matter of days, the same people shouting, Hosanna, will be the same ones asking for Barabbas, or shouting, crucify him. Jesus was the Davidic king, is the Davidic king who brought salvation. It just wasn't the salvation that they wanted. Think of Alexander the Great. We've already been talking about him. When he swept across the known world in unbelievable speed to establish his dominion, did he come humbly on a donkey? On a donkey? No. He wanted to show his strength. He wanted people to fear him. He wanted his enemies to cower and submit to him. He rode into cities on his war horse with his army behind him. Our king did not arrive on a war horse. The Jewish people rejected Jesus because they wanted a warrior to overthrow the Roman Empire. But he came in humility. He came not to kill, but to die on our behalf. He didn't come to overthrow the empire. He came to overthrow sin and death, and the cross was his instrument in doing that. Now, now don't misunderstand. Jesus will uproot every nation and kingdom, and he will establish a perfect kingdom. We see that in verse 10. But verse 10 is looking forward to the return of Jesus at his second coming. And there we see the king speaking peace to the nations. He, he rules from sea to sea. He cuts off the chariot, cuts off the war horse and, and, and the battle bow. There's no need for instruments of war. There's no need for any of that because there's no conflict. There is no more war in this new kingdom. Jesus reigns in this kingdom of perfect peace. All people of every single nation will love and follow the Lord. And this perfect kingdom has a perfect king. No corrupt leaders, no political scandal, no injustice, no invaders, no war. Our king is perfect in righteousness and justice, and his, king, and his kingdom will be as well. And we know that verse 10 has to refer to the second coming for a couple of reasons. One, I don't know if you've noticed, we're not living in a perfect kingdom right now, right? There's so many problems. There's so much brokenness in this world. So clearly this has not taken place yet. But the other reason we know this is that the New Testament writers, they only quoted verse 9. They didn't quote what it says in verse 10 because they knew that this new kingdom wasn't fully realized yet. It wasn't going to be established physically quite yet. Our king has come. He offered salvation to the world, but church, he is coming again. And when he does, he will set things right. He will establish a perfect kingdom. And we who have embraced his free gift of salvation will reign with him for all of eternity. Let's take a look at the last section here, verses 11 through 17. <clears throat> As for you also... 
because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine with the young women. <clears throat> now again, Zechariah is going to focus on events taking place at very different times. First he speaks to his own time, then to his near future, and, and then to a, a time that is future even to us. So at the time that, that Zechariah wrote this, ba the Babylonian Empire, they had fallen to the Persians. Israelites were free to return home. The exile was over, but many remained in exile. Many did not come home to the land of Israel. Instead, they remained where they were. And so Zechariah here is calling them to return home. Come back to your stronghold. The stronghold is Jerusalem. This is a call to come home. And they need to come home because God has a plan for them. Zechariah reminds his readers of the covenant with the Lord. Remember, they're probably frustrated thinking that the Lord has abandoned us. And so Zechariah says, no, 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 he has not abandoned you. This is the God of the covenant. He remembers the covenant that we confirmed with him. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses took the blood of the sacrifices. And he said, behold the blood of the covenant. And he threw it on the people of Israel. And it was functioning as, as a solemn reminder of the binding nature of this covenant. And it also foreshadowed a much greater sacrifice that would come through Jesus Christ. But Zechariah is telling them, God has not forgotten you. He remembers the covenant. We are his people, and he is going to restore us to something far greater than what we ever were in the past. And then in verse 13, we, we find another reason why the Jewish people are called to return home. Because God is going to use them to defeat the people of Greece. He makes Judah, his bow, Ephraim, his arrow. He's going to wield them as a sword against Greece. Now, the Israelites never fought against Alexander the Great's empire. But when he died, that empire was split into four among his four generals. And one of those smaller kingdoms was the Seleucid kingdom. And it was led by a man named Antiochus IV. Some of you have probably heard of him. This man was a monstrous tyrant. And he tried to eradicate the Jewish faith. And his treatment of the Jewish people ultimately led them to revolt against him. He tried to auction off the position of high priest in the Jewish temple to whoever would give him the greatest tribute. And then he committed probably the most sacrilegious act imaginable for a Jewish person. The Jews had very strict laws when it came to, to being clean and unclean. Certain animals could and could not be eaten. Eating or touching something that was unclean was considered to defile that person, to make them unclean. Now the temple and everything in it 
it was holy. It was specially set apart for ministry and worship to the Lord. And so everything had to be strictly maintained and cared for out of respect for God's holiness. Nothing unclean could enter into that temple. But Antiochus ordered an unclean pig to be sacrificed to Zeus on the altar in the Jewish temple. And then he took the blood of that pig and he sprinkled it all over the sacrificial instruments, desecrating and defiling the holiness of that temple. This is as sacrilegious as it gets, and it outraged the Jewish people. And it, it was their breaking point. And from then, they moved into rebellion against him. The book of Daniel actually prophesies about that specific event. He calls it the abomination of desolation. If you're familiar with the books of First and Second Maccabees, it explains in much greater detail than I can go into here uh, the, the details of the brutal and gruesome persecution the Jewish people faced at the hands of Antiochus. Ultimately, that, that rebellion lasted seven years, and God delivered the people of Israel from their, from, from their oppressors once again. And, and all of that took place like 167-ish to 160 A.D., so about 300 years after Zechariah wrote the book of Zechariah. Now, pretty much every scholar agrees that verse 13 is referring to this, this revolt that I just explained to you. Some of them try to say that this was a later addition into the book of Zechariah. And they say, you know, after the revolt happened, they wrote about it, and then they put it back into Zechariah's work to make it seem as though he was prophesying about the future, but really he didn't actually do that. And that's just foolishness. And I bring that up because if you open up a commentary, you're going to see that most likely, depending on the commentary you're reading at least. But the source of Zechariah's prophecy was the God who is sovereign over every nation. The God who created all things, including time itself, certainly he could have shown Zechariah these events in advance. And this victory over Greece was just one more demonstration of the truthfulness of biblical prophecy and God's ability to protect and deliver his people. Now verses 14 through 17, they look even more into the future, past us, to a time when God delivers and protects his people yet again. And finally and ultimately judges the people of the world that have not come to faith in Jesus. In verse 14, you have these images of God appearing over his people. And he appears to fight with them. We see God sounding the trumpet. And the trumpet can be kind of a metaphor for, for many different things. It could signal the start of a certain celebrations. It could be a call to worship. A number of things. But in this context... It's a call to arms. The Lord blows the trumpet to rally his people for battle. And the Lord's place in that battle is described using this, this storm language. It says that he sends out arrows like lightning. He's described as a whirlwind moving in from the south, which again is significant. Remember at the start, it was coming from north to south to bring judgment. Well, also in the Old Testament, coming from the south, that, that was, that was uh, associated with blessing and with good things. So now the Lord is blessing his people. He is moving with them to conquer his enemies once and for all. And the language of the lightning and the arrows, this is used throughout the Psalms. This is used by King David in his song of deliverance in 2 Samuel. It's, it's, where it's one of the ways that they used to credit God's hand in their victory in battle. The language of the whirlwind implies the same idea. It's, it's used in Scripture to, uh, to show God as this this wrath coming up against the, his enemies and overwhelming and devastating them. 
That's the image here. There's this massive, violent storm, a whirlwind with, with lightning flashing all over the place, moving forward in front of his people as they march towards their enemies to, to win this final battle. And then we come to verse 15. And, and I want to say a couple things about this because most scholars see a change of, of imagery here. And they say this is no longer a scene of war or battle, but this is a scene of, of feasting, of celebrating the deliverance of God. And, and I think that's incorrect. And, and I think the reason that they, they take this, this stance is that they're uncomfortable by the imagery that we find here. And so they want to make it a little bit more palatable. They want to make it a little bit more PG-rated. And so and they point towards like devour, which, which also means to eat. And, and they say drink, and they're like, this is a scene of, of feasting, of eating and drinking, celebrating God's provision for them. And just like a bowl is filled with food, they're going to be filled up with all the food they can eat and drink. The problem with this interpretation is it really is not a natural reading uh, of, of the language here. I mean, this language of eating and drinking, it's used elsewhere in Zechariah, specifically in the context of fighting, of battle, of war. And this interpretation, it also ignores the significance of the bull and the horns of the altar. I'm not aware of any place in Scripture, I can't say certainly that it never does this, but I'm not aware of any where a bull is used as an analogy for food and, and provision and fulfillment. Most often, the bull is used to symbolize judgment especially in eschatological context, context of focusing on the end times. That's what we're seeing here, that the bowl would be filled up with God's wrath or judgment and then poured out on God's enemies. That's the context here. This battle in which God decisively and finally defeats his enemies. So rather than, than the clean and tidy love feast where everybody's just hanging out and having a good time, you have a battlefield where God delivers his enemies into the hands of his people who devour them, who trample over the sling stones. And that's, the sling stones are the stones you use from a sling. It's pretty simple. But it's a stand-in for their enemies. They're devouring, they're trampling over them. It says they will drink their blood like it was wine. The bowl of God's judgment is full. It's poured out on his enemies. And, enemy, and the people of God are soaked in blood like the, the horns of the altar would be soaked after a sacrifice. So the imagery we're seeing here is, is the people of God actually participating with God in judging his enemies. And again, this is not the, implying that God's people will literally eat the flesh and drink the blood of their enemies. It's describing the decisive victory God enacts to save his people. And while God's people participate in this, the overall emphasis is on God's role as the protector and deliverer of his people. And that's the third part of Zechariah's message. God will protect his people and deliver them into his kingdom. Now the imagery does change in verses 16 and 17. We're no longer looking at a battle, but we're seeing the imagery of a shepherd and his sheep. The first phrase of, of verse 16, where it says, On that day... Um, that, that's used in, in prophecy to refer to the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord judges people and establishes his kingdom. So on that day, the Lord will save his people as his own flock. He's going to care for them, protect them as a shepherd cares for and protects his sheep. If we keep reading through Zechariah in the next chapter, you'd see that, that the same king, the Davidic king, Jesus, the Messiah, is also described as a shepherd who would protect his sheep from, from the wicked shepherds that are currently over them. 
And then it says that they will be to him like precious jewels in a crown. And it's demonstrating God's deep love and care for his people. They are precious to him like precious stones. The enemies of God, they are the sling stones who will be trampled underneath the feet of the, of the people of God in God's judgment. But God's people, those who are faithful to him, who come to faith, they are precious stones in his crown. And it says that they shine on his land, probably referring to the way in which God's people will continue to serve him and be a reflection of his goodness and glory in his new kingdom. And the chapter closes by praising the Lord for his goodness and beauty. It says that he will give grain to make men flourish and new wine to the young women. It's an image of God's provision for his people in this new kingdom. Every need, everything they could ever need will be satisfied and met in the Lord. How good and beautiful the Lord truly is that he would do that for a sinful people, people who over and over reject him. You see, in this chapter, Zechariah is showing the people of God that God has a plan for them. And that plan ultimately ends, it puts an end to the harassment, the oppression that they, they experience from foreign nations. This plan includes judging God's enemies and bringing his people safely into his kingdom of perfect peace and righteousness. Now the overall message of Zechariah 9, the big idea, is that God will save his people. God will save his people. Now what's the significance of of a passage like this. This passage was written 2,500 years, uh, 2, years ago. How, how does this passage shape the way that we live today? How does it affect the way that we live before a holy God? Well, I'm going to offer three applications as we conclude. Number one, find your security in God. Tyre used its wealth, its strength, to build a fortress. They took pride in it. It took pride in the security it offered. And it worked for a while, for a long time, actually. But ultimately, it couldn't last. Eventually, it was crushed. It was laid low. But God protects his people. He has promised to deliver us. It would be foolish for us to look anywhere else. When the nations found security in worldly things, it didn't offer any real protection. And Zechariah's message reminds the people of God that he is their true security. Nothing on this earth can provide lasting security for you. Your bank account, your job, your best friend, your spouse, retirement fund, political leaders, your country, none of that lasts. None of it should be your source of security in this life. God is the true fortress. God cannot be shaken by the troubles of this life. So in times of uncertainty, look to the God who is sovereign over all things for security and stability. Number two, Put your faith in Jesus. God will save his people. And Jesus is the only way to experience that salvation. Jesus came, and though he was sinless, he bore our sin on the cross. And he rose from the dead, conquering over sin and death. He who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. One day, God will judge all people. We saw this in the last few verses of our passage. Every one of us is sinful, and therefore, we are rightly under the wrath and judgment of God. But when we put our faith in Jesus, 
We are forgiven, and God declares us righteous. Not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and perfection. That is the only way to be spared from, the judgment, from God's judgment on our sin. Despite what the world would have you believe, all religions do not lead to the same God. Being a good person will not suffice. Doing a kind thing a day will not make sure you turn out okay in the end. If that is your plan, you will not turn out okay in the end. You will be like the sling stones trampled underfoot. We are saved by faith in Jesus alone. And that is a gift of God's grace. There's one plan for salvation, and that plan is Jesus. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I urge you to put your faith in him today. And if you'd like to talk further about what that means or how you can follow Jesus, I would love to have that conversation with you after the service. Number three, obey Jesus as we wait for him to establish his kingdom. You see, in one sense, we're waiting for the full, or yeah, we're waiting for the full realization, the physical establishment of this kingdom of God. In another sense, the kingdom has already come. Jesus made that clear in his ministry. As we saw in our passage today, Jesus will return to establish that physical kingdom, but in his ministry, he revealed to his followers what the kingdom is like. He revealed how the citizens of that kingdom ought to live. The values of the kingdom of God must be evident in its citizens. And church, if you are a follower of Jesus, then already you are a citizen of his kingdom. And in our king's absence, we must show the world who our king is and what his kingdom is like. And that means that we must walk in obedience to all that he has commanded in his word. We don't discard some of it because the world says, no, that's not right. This is right. We obey all that Christ has commanded us to do. We follow the example he set for us during his time on earth. And we will not be perfect, not until Jesus comes again. But as we wait, we strive to live lives of faithfulness and righteousness so that others can see that our king is good, that he is worthy of our faith and obedience. Just as the people of Israel were looking forward to the coming of the king, we now look forward to the return of the king. Zechariah told the people of Israel to rejoice because the king is coming. And church, I say the same thing to you. Rejoice because the king will return. He will come back to establish his kingdom. He will set things right. And what a day that will be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. A God that keeps his promises, that does not abandon his people. And Lord, we praise you because you have made a way for us to be saved and forgiven from our sin. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to live in light of the coming kingdom of heaven. That, that as we wait for King Jesus to return, that we would walk in obedience, that we would show others the goodness of our King. Lord, help us to keep our minds fixed on you as we go this week. Help us to, to live in a way that reflects rightly on you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.